Thank you for listening, but please be advised that I hold no definitive knowledge on any of the topics I talk about. If you notice an error, I'd appreciate being advised. You can email corrections to livingthroughextinction at gmail.com or message me through one of the social medias. Also, I swear, maybe a little more than I should in some shows. Anyway, nothing is bleeped, so listener discretion is advised. situation here in Hawaii earlier this evening. The uh, civil defense calling for an evacuation of all low-lying areas because of a tsunami. The sky turns black as giant tornadoes touch down from Nebraska to Texas. Hello, I'm Ruby and this is episode 47 of Living Through Extinction, a short to the point podcast with science skepticism, environment, wildlife, and ways in which we can do better for future generations. If you've joined me before, then thank you so much for returning. If this is your first episode of Living Through Extinction, welcome. I hope you find it both fun and informative. On episode 27, I did my first skeptical segment focused on logical fallacies. Ad hominem attacks, the bandwagon fallacy, and straw man fallacies were covered. On episode 35, three more were covered. The causation correlation fallacy, circular reasoning, and the true Scotsman fallacy. Continuing on, today I'm bringing you three more to add to your debate arsenal. Use these for yourself when trying to determine if something has enough evidence to be convincing. Call these out when someone you're debating a topic with uses one to make a point. This episode I'm covering appeal to ignorance, false dilemma, false dichotomy, and appeal to pity. Beginning with appeal to ignorance, this occurs when someone is using what is unknown or unknowable to make a point. The following two statements, while using it for opposing views, are both guilty of appealing to ignorance. 1. No one has ever proven that X exists, so X must not be real. Or 2. No one has ever proven that X does not exist, so X must be real. The lack of evidence is not evidence. All the statements are saying on the existence of X is that it's not known. They don't actually prove any claims of knowledge. One cannot make a valid point with an appeal to ignorance. Many fallacies have multiple names they are known by. I find that confusing sometimes. False dilemma is also known as false dichotomy, and I believe it has other names as well. A false dilemma puts a choice in front of you which does not include all the actual possibilities. Usually it'll be two statements. It's either this or that, when really there are possibly dozens of possibilities. It also tends to be done on purpose for the means of manipulation. Now, obviously, this isn't a fallacy if there really are only two possible options. Oh, and I I just remembered another of its name, two more of its names. It's also known as the either-or fallacy or the black-and-white fallacy. Politicians use it deliberately to oversimplify the options being put out to the voters. They are able to manipulate their audiences into loving or hating the desired person, place, or thing in this way. A quick, simple example would be, either you are pro-life or you hate Jesus. There are people who actually say that out there. Except, there is an entire movement called Catholics for Choice, and uh, they are pro-choice and they love Jesus. Also, there's nothing in the Bible against abortions. If anything, it seems fine with the herbal form of abortion, so maybe the Catholics finally got one right. Funny since they're the one denomination which is actively discouraged from private study of it. Anyway, moving on. The final fallacy I'm going to explain today is the appeal to pity. The fact of the matter is true is true. The emotional feeling you get from what is said has nothing to do with whether or not it's true. Appeal to pity is deliberately used for emotional manipulation and it causes us to mistake feelings for facts. 
We need to recognize our emotional reactions and take an extra skeptical look at what is making us feel that way. Emotion has nothing to do with truth. So, if you've been with me since episode 27, that's nine fallacy we have under our belts now. Now, just because I know them does not mean I always catch myself on them. So if you notice me making a logical fallacy, let me know. Call me on it. You can email me at livingthroughextinction at gmail.com. And keep learning to be skeptical, damn it. A recently published study in Global Change Biology used artificial intelligence to model forests and their expected changes under climate change. Some very bad news is that it appears wildfires may very well become much more common and severe in and around Yellowstone National Park in the next few decades. We could be seeing large fires every year from the middle to the end of the century. The team says that if this all proves true, between 28 and 59% of forest coverage in this location will be lost. The future Yellowstone area may consist of a profoundly altered ecosystem as a result of fewer dense forests and increased open woodland, grass and shrubs, probably unrecognizable to the regular visitors of today. Fuck, I hate wasps. I mean, I really fucking hate wasps. They have ruined many a picnic, camp out, get together, whatever. They are currently nesting under my porch. I have no love for these fuckers. There are over 9,000 species of wasp. While most are solitary, what we know best around here are the colony-living, nest-building, annoying-as-fuck assholes called yellow jackets. So, apparently, they do good shit and we're supposed to appreciate them as much as we do other insects. I still fucking hate them, but in fairness, they supposedly do more good than harm in the world, so here's why we should appreciate the little sons of bitches. Apparently, a world without wasps would not be a better place. They are extremely important in the environment, playing vital roles in protecting gardens and farm crops by controlling pests. They capture and consume all sorts of insects which cause problems to farmers. They also help to disperse seeds in the wild. And, of course, they're pollinators. In fact, they contribute $250 billion a year to the economy in pollinating. It's estimated that wasps in the UK might account for 14 million kilograms of insect prey in a single summer. That's 14 million kilograms of insects which could have been causing harm to crops. The protection they provide to crops is worth at least 416 billion per year. In Brazil, wasps are used to protect high-value crops such as maize and sugarcane. So no wasps equals increased insect issues. So wasps are just as big a part of food security as bees. Many of the solitary species of wasps are specialists with specific pests just like some bee species are specialists for specific plants. The venom and saliva of wasps have antibiotic properties and are being studied for use in medicine development. I read in one place that study of the venom in yellow jackets may result in a treatment for some cancers. Like bees, wasps are losing their habitats and being affected by both climate change and pesticide use. So apparently they are important and it is crucial that we try to protect them. I apologize for my lack of enthusiasm on this one, okay? They're important. I still think they're assholes. The eating of insects is called entomophagy. While a widespread practice, particularly in tropical and subtropical nations, while a basic part of the everyday lives of millions of people, here in North America we're turned off by the idea. Our fears and feelings of yuckiness have been ingrained into us through the cultures we were raised in. It's not always easy to overcome something like that. Of course, 
because it is not something we want, there's no infrastructure for it. No demand, so why would anyone waste time and money on health and safety issues to put out something that won't sell, right? But the thing is, the adoption of the practice of entomophagy in nations which currently rely on animal proteins would have benefits heaped upon benefits. Our acceptance and gradual move towards entomophagy could put us on a positive path when it comes to future food security. The switch from animal to insect proteins would eliminate the need for livestock, eliminating any cruelty to said livestock. The amount of land required is much less, so it drastically reduces deforestation. Water usage is much lower too. It takes drastically less water to obtain the same amount of protein from insects as it does from cows. And CO2 emissions! Reduced livestock means less of that as well, of course. Insects grow quickly and in a controlled environment can get very large. Many can be eaten at every stage of life, providing different tastes and textures as eggs, nymphs, and adults, depending on the species. They reproduce at much higher rates than any known livestock, and their development from birth to childbearing is much, much, much shorter. They are also easily harvested in large amounts. When it comes to their diet and growth, they are five times more efficient at converting food into edible bug meat. And many insects can be raised strictly on food waste. There is a farm in Singapore currently raising black soldier fly larvae on nothing but discarded food waste. It's a double bonus there. Livestock requires fields of crops to be grown to feed it. Insects can just feed on what we throw away. The difference that makes is huge. Interestingly, in taste tests, insect-based burgers rated between beef burgers and lentil burgers, so not as good as one, but better than the other. With meat being so resource intensive and its production being so very damaging to the environment, why aren't we at least trying to make even a partial switch? I mean, we already take in around 0.9 kilograms of insects every year. That would be about two pounds. There are allowances in North American industries for a certain amount of insect parts per so many pounds or something like that. We're eating insect parts with our rice, pasta, broccoli, spinach, and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration allows for 2,500 aphids per 10 grams of hops in beer production. Over 2 billion people on our planet eat insects. They are an essential part of the diet in 130 countries. We initially evolved as insect eaters. Before meat, that's where our protein came from. We relied on them for thousands of years. Another something I found interesting was there were studies done in poorer populations where malnutrition was prevalent. And when giving regular breads and wheat buns enriched with insects, the enriched buns were preferred over any of the other breads. Overall, insects are an excellent source for proteins, vitamins, fats, essential minerals, and there are so many to try. Did you know that there are over 2,000 edible insects we know of, all with their own flavors and textures? And many of which, as I mentioned earlier, can be eaten at any stage of life. The variety of new flavors we may be able to experience with entomophagy is mind-blowing. You've got termites, high in nutrition and a healthy amount of fat and proteins. They apparently have a nut-like flavor after cooking. Black soldier fly larvae apparently taste like Fritos. Weaver ants are high in protein and fatty acids and one of the most valued types of insects eaten. The reason is that they're a prized deliki in some Asian countries, but also, mainly, they're used as a valued feed for songbirds in Indonesia. Mealworm burgers are already on the market in Switzerland. They've shown that one gram of protein from a chicken requires two to three times as much land and 50% more water than one gram of protein from mealworms. 
When compared to beef, one gram of protein uses up to 14 times as much land and five times as much water as mealworms. Also commonly eaten are houseflies, wax moth larvae, hornworm caterpillars, honeybee larvae, and crickets. If we care at all about doing better for future generations, then this switch from livestock to insects is something we really should be working towards. The difference it could make is drastic. A good drastic. While still seen as kind of gross in North America and Europe for the most part, interest has been growing. The word is slowly spreading about what an environmentally sound alternative to meat insects have the potential to be. We need a massive shift in our perceptions of insects so that we can reach a point where there's enough demand for everything else to get started. I read that it'll need to begin with collaborative efforts from researchers, insect farmers, food manufacturers, and regulatory agencies. Then we can have some product development, consumer testing, nutrition and safety assessments, and finally, someday, mass production and processing. We could totally do it, but it would take the right groups of people wanting to make it happen. Maybe in a hundred years, assuming we're not all enslaved by Christians by then. I don't have anything particularly happy to share or talk about this week, so this is going to be a sharing episode. Today I decided to share about the three explosions I've felt and or seen since moving to Winnipeg in the 90s. The first one I witnessed, though I didn't understand what was happening at the time at first. I was there when a manhole cover blew on Ellis. This would have been mid to late 90s. Hey flower child, you listening? You were there, what year was this? I had taken a bus down to a local college to meet my friend as she was getting out of classes. We bust downtown together and then we were just walking. We were going to go towards Portage somewhere around Hargrave, I think. Suddenly there was a weird rumble and a loud whooshing boom and there was a super tall though rather thin funnel of dust and debris right there in front of us. That funnel had to be several stories high. Or maybe I was just high and it looked that way. I don't know. I was with my flower child after all. The sound of that manhole cover crashing to the ground, that was something else as well. What always got me, Ellis is a busy street. How is it possible that this thing blew up, came down, and didn't hit a single vehicle in either direction? It always kind of blew my mind that no cars or people were hurt. I'm glad. Can you imagine being in a car and having one of those blow beneath you? What would happen? Would it just destroy your car? Is there enough pressure from that to actually flip a small car? Anyway, that was one we'll always remember, right, Flower? My second experience was in the 2000s. I can't recall the season, but I know there was no snow on the ground. I was at my workplace. There was nobody up front, and I had gone up to the front desk to do something. The sound was definitely louder than when the manhole cover blew. The entire building was shaking. My ears felt assaulted, and I put my hands down on the front counter and just yelled, What the hell is that? With much more panic. I have to admit I was pretty freaked out at this one because it was obviously bad, but I had no idea what to think. I couldn't imagine what it could be, but then it seemed to just be over. Then one of the bosses at the time comes into his doorway down the hall from where I'm standing stunned and says, did you feel that? It happened out here. So I run down to his office to look out his giant window and there's a small propane truck burning like mad in the back of the garage next door. He was in his office when it happened. I can't imagine what it must have felt like right there. Again, nobody was hurt, thank goodness. The driver of the truck was in the garage at the moment. We watched him walk out and stare blankly at his burning truck for a few minutes. I'm presuming someone inside had already called for a fire truck at this point. What blew my mind about this one was the fact that my boss's window was fine. I mean, it was a good 75 to 100 feet away, but still, if I heard about this explosion without being there, I would have just assumed that that window had been taken out. So a bunch of us gathered and watched the poor thing burn for a while, and then we went back to work. 
In my last Winnipeg explosion experience, I didn't get to see it all. I was far away in my North End home when this one was executed in St. James. It couldn't have been a work day as I was sleeping in. I was awakened by an explosion and a shaking house. My room was on the upper floor at the time, so I probably felt it more than I would have otherwise. I didn't have a phone or anything like that back then, so my immediate reaction was to turn on my radio alarm clock to CJOB. If there was an explosion somewhere, they would do breaking news on it, right? And I was right. In less than 10 minutes, I had my answer. It was the old arena coming down. I feel for those of you who lived in the area at the time, if my house shook all the way over here in the North End, then you must have been practically thrown out of bed. And that's it. And hopefully that will remain to be it. Three explosions is enough for me, thank you. Have you ever been surprised by an explosion? Tell me about it at livingthroughextinction at gmail.com. I'm done for today. Thank you for listening and may your health and sanity be replenished daily. Thank you to Jason Martin for composing the intro-outro for the show and thank you to Kathy Rayner and Paul Palmer for the musical contributions on the violin and guitar. I hope you will join me in two weeks for episode 48 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoy and would like to support the show, the best ways to do so are to subscribe, rate, comment, like, and share on your favorite podcast apps and all the social medias. The show can be found under Living Through Extinction on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and TikTok, and under LTE Pod on Twitter. There is also a Patreon under Living Through Extinction where you can earn stickers, pins, masks, and more. If you have any comments, questions, corrections, or suggestions, or even just to say hi, email livingthroughextinction at gmail.com. The uh, civil defense calling for an evacuation of all low-lying areas because of a tsunami threat. Sky turns black as giant tornadoes touch down from Nebraska to Texas. Apocalyptic scenes as twisters.